Jesus is speaking in John 15, 8 through 14. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue our series on the law of Jesus, we are going to look in today's passage in John 15 at why we can follow the law that he's laid out. Just as a reminder, Jesus has summarized the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what sort of person does that? What about your identity and my identity would need to shift or what would need to happen to us to help us to become the sorts of loving people that would obey Jesus from the heart. James Clear, in his book, Atomic Habits, talks about the, the loop between identity and habits. And what Clear says is, the things that we believe about who we are drive how we behave. And the things that we do drive how we see ourselves. It's this endless loop. So, and, and Clear's not a Christian, he's just sort of talking observationally about human nature. But as an example, he says, if you think of yourself as an unhealthy person who's temporarily dieting, you're always going to be at a disadvantage to trying to eat healthy. But if you see yourself as someone who eats healthy food, then that's going to be what drives your choices of what you eat. And the more healthy food you eat, the more you're going to see yourself as someone who is a healthy person, and the cycle continues and continues. The problem, from a spiritual standpoint, is all of us know our hearts, and we, we know that at the core, in our natural state, we're actually not someone who loves God and loves our neighbor perfectly. While, while Clear's observations about habits and identity can be helpful for choosing what we eat and choosing how we exercise and whether we smoke and lots of other things, they, they don't shift in us from a spiritual standpoint. In today's passage, we're going to look at how Jesus changes our identity and in the process changes our capacity to love from a full heart. This, pa this passage kind of breaks down into a few different parts, and I wish we had time to cover all of chapter 15, uh, but we're just going to cover a short section of it from verses 8 to 14 today. And it breaks down to three parts. Um, where our love for others can come from, and then secondly, what happens when we love others, and then most importantly, how Jesus has demonstrated his love for us. So let's get into verse 8 as we start our, our sermon today. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus' point in this passage is that because of what he has done for us, and because of his love for us, we are now capable of living a life of love that we weren't beforehand. 
And Jesus says that the roots of our love for others are grounded in the soil of his love for us. Jesus uses a metaphor throughout this passage, throughout all this chapter, of himself being like a vine that we are branches off of. And our connection to him is the source of our nutrition and our vitality. That as much as we're connected to him, we're able then to live a life that reflects uh, the vine itself. That as fruit-bearing parts of who he is, we can demonstrate in our lives that we're connected to Jesus himself. This metaphor of him being the vine and us being the branches is such a a rich and beautiful picture of what it means to be living in Christ. It's not a unique one in the New Testament, though. It's one that God has used in the Old Testament as well, that Jesus is now re, un, helping us reinterpret and re-understand in light of him. Here's what I mean. In Isaiah 5 and in Psalm 80, Israel is described as the vine that is meant to bear fruit for the benefit of the world. And Jesus now in John says, I am the vine. I am the one that people are connected to in in order to live a holy and good life before God. That nothing less than being connected to me will enable you to bear the sort of fruit that glorifies God. What do we mean by fruit? Uh, I mean, metaphors can only help us so much until we are able to, to understand them. By fruit, I think what Jesus is saying here is, people who demonstrate the sort of character and heart and love for God and our neighbor. This is uh, described in a couple other places. One is uh, John the Baptist yells at the Pharisees when they come out to him, who warns you, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, live a life that shows that you have a repentant heart. Or Paul, similarly in Galatians 5, will say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. In the same way, Jesus is using that language of fruit here to describe the overflow of the heart, that the things that we do, the actions we have, the attitudes that we display towards others reveal the truth of who we are connected to. Or, to put more negatively, they reveal a lack of connection to Jesus himself. So let's think about life, and think about your life and my life. What do we see about how we are connected to Jesus and the way that we demonstrate love for God and love for our neighbor? Jesus says that if we're connected to him, we'll bear a lot of fruit. We'll we'll demonstrate that in our love for our neighbor. When we bear fruit, we show we're connected to Jesus. And the fruit that Jesus is referring to is the sort of life that overflows in love for God and our neighbor. So how much fruit are we bearing? I've struggled with this sermon a little bit this week because I've been trying to figure out a way to say this that seems profound or novel or new because I know that this is a truth and a passage that a lot of you are very familiar with. But, alas, I can't figure out any way to make it creatively new or novel. But what I can rely on is that this challenge is different in every season and this challenge is needed in every season. Because while it's something that we teach even our youngest kids to love God and love your neighbor, that's a challenge that we never grow out of. We're always in need of being challenged about our love for one another and especially our love for God. So let's be honest. 
How are you doing at loving one another? How are you doing at loving the people in your life that are sometimes most difficult to love? How are you doing at demonstrating and acting out that love in practical ways? Because it's, it's not just about you being a better person or living a more moral life. Jesus says nothing short of my relationship with you is shown in the way that you love people around you. Uh, John describes this in 1 John 4 when he says, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You know, I think we all kind of carry weights around with us of things that we wish we did that we don't. And we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, I should really be more like that. I should really eat healthier, or I should really exercise more, or I should really spend less time on social media. Uh, You know, come January 1st, I'm going to make a resolution. I'm going to change that about myself. Love for God and our neighbor is not like that. It's not that sort of simple habit or that sort of nagging shame. Love for God is the very core of our identity and of our heart. And when it's absent, we have to take great life-changing strides to evaluate why and to turn ourselves back towards Christ. And the way we do that, Jesus says, is to abide in his love. That is to remain in his love or to live in the house of his love. Because the fruit that Jesus described doesn't come from our self-control, It doesn't come from our internal effort. It comes from Jesus. And if we're going to have the freedom to bear the sort of fruit that we want, the freedom to bear the sort of fruit that reflects Jesus, we can only do that by constraining ourselves to a relationship with Jesus. If we want to be free to bear that sort of fruit, we need to constrain ourselves to a relationship with him. Well, before we move on, let me deal with an objection here that sometimes comes up. Is Jesus saying that only Christians can be loving people? Is Jesus' point in this passage that only people who know him can actually be good people? Because the objection sometimes follows, I don't think that's true. I know lots of people who aren't Christians who are very loving or do very loving things. Or you might say, I know a lot of Christians who are jerks, and they're way not as loving as my non-Christian friends. Is Jesus saying that only Christians can be loving people? No, no, I don't don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I do think Jesus is saying that the only fruit that will last eternally is fruit that comes from him. But I don't think that he's saying only Christians can do loving things. After all, we see in our lives and in our world today that sometimes our neighbors who don't know Jesus act with more self-sacrifice than we do, right? But what Jesus is saying is that love comes out of a soil of love that our capacity to love God and others comes from our being loved by someone. And if that, if that soil is shallow and that love we experience is only a human love, the fruit will be limited and it won't last. But as Christians, we have access to an eternal, infinite love. And as a result of that, we're able to bear fruit way beyond our capacity or way beyond the capacity of our culture or our society, and bear fruit that demonstrates the infinite God that we serve and are loved by. Now, does that always happen? Of course not. I mean, you know that from your life. I know that from my life. And we look at sometimes our, our own personal history, our family history, our national history, history of humanity, history of the Christian church, and we can look with grief at times where we have failed to bear fruit 
and born thorns instead, and we grieve over those things. But, but that doesn't mean that, um, that the soil is bad, that the soil is wrong, or that Jesus' truth is wrong. And often, if we're being honest, we do see times, and I see times in you and in our church, that we do demonstrate the fruit of being connected to Jesus and how we love one another. I think about our Stephen ministers, for example, and the way that they practice their relationship with Jesus for the benefit of others, for the love of others, and how they're even continuing to do that during this time of COVID uh, over Zoom and on phone calls and stuff like that, continuing to, to practice what Jesus is saying here of abiding in his love, in Jesus' love, in order to bear fruit for the benefit of their neighbor. All right, well, let's keep talking about identity here in the next part of the passage where Jesus talks about how his love how his love changed how we view others and changed our relationship with others. It changed our relationship with him and it changed our relationship with, with our neighbor. This is verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says that we are to love one another because we have a home in the love of the father that our, our love for one another comes out of a place of identity before we have to perform. Do you see that in verse 10, how Jesus compares our relationship with him to his relationship with the Father? And he says, just as I had a place with the Father from eternity past, and I abided in his love, so you have a place with me, you abide with me, you can remain with me as you keep my commandments. This is a, a really important lesson because a lot of us, as we experience human life, feel like we have to perform in order to find a place, in order to find an identity. We have to perform habits and attitudes and practices and rituals in order to earn a seat at the table. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Just as I was with my Father from eternity past, you can abide in my love. And as you abide there, it changes who you are and how you treat your neighbor. This is sometimes thought of as like the, the spillover effect, right? That the capacity to which we know that we are loved by God changes how we treat and love our neighbor. Think about how the spillover effect works sometimes those of you guys who are teachers. And you see sometimes in how a kid is acting out at school a problem that might be going on at home. And even if you don't know exactly what the problem is going on at home, you can see in how they treat their classmates that there is a problem in their identity and in their home life. And on the same level, I think that is your life and my life. How we treat our coworkers is a spillover effect from how we are loved by God or how we foreclose the love of God in our life. How loving we are to our kids or how we discipline them or how we show our love for our spouse or fail to show our love for our spouse is a spillover effect, Jesus is saying, from how we know that we are loved by him. If we abide in our love, it gives us the capacity to love our neighbor. Now, I realize that there's a lot of factors in how we treat our neighbor, and, and that's, those are sermons for another day. We can talk about how we're habituated in our families, the culture that we participate in, what seems normal, where our sinful nature fits in, the, the devil, lots of other stuff. But, but for the sake of this passage, 
just wants to zero in on whether we know that we are loved by him and whether we are willing to abide in his love as a reason why we either choose or refrain from loving our neighbor. I love this frame of continue in my love as, as really asking about our spiritual life. I've, I've started thinking about like, how would it change how I saw my spiritual growth if I asked the question, how am I doing at remaining in Jesus' love this week? Or what if that was a conversation in your life group or maybe with your, the kids that you're volunteering with or around your dinner table? Um, how are you doing at remaining in the love of Jesus? Because on the surface, it sounds remarkably ungrowthy, right? It's, it's more fun to sometimes talk about what are you learning? No, that's a good question. Or how are, you, how are you moving forward? Or what progress are you making? But Jesus, in this case, says there's an important lesson in remaining in my love, abiding in my love, sitting still in my love. And in an almost paradoxical way, remaining, staying static in his love, is the pathway for progress in the spiritual life. The more that we stay there with him, the more we're able to move forward and change and grow in our love for God and others. And the result of this, verse 11 says, is that we live a life of joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the second time Jesus uses this language of, of his virtues becoming ours. Right? As we abide in him, we benefit from that which is his. As we stay connected to the vine, we are the recipients of the nutrition that he provides. What do I mean? Look at verse 11. It says, he's spoken these that his joy may be now in us and that our joy may fill up as a result. When we're connected to Jesus, when we take in the life of Christ, the joy that is in him becomes joy in us. And joy, in this case, just like love that we talked about earlier, is an expression of the Spirit's life with us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus' joy produces, drives us towards a place of love for one another. All right, last part of the passage here in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is the third part of what Jesus has talked about when he says that his love changes our relationship with God. Because the love that Jesus has for us is not just a warm feeling or a wishing the best, but it is his choice to even give up his very life for us. Jesus has modeled for us what it means to live a life of love. And it means to sacrifice what we prefer for the benefit of another. And in Jesus' case, this go means even going to the cross for our sins. Jesus' love for us changed our lives and made us friends of God because he has saved us. To be loved by Jesus requires both acknowledging that salvation and turning to him for that salvation alone. One of the questions that sometimes comes up as we read this passage is Jesus' famous line here, where it says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's a, it's a 
beautiful verse. It's an important verse. It's a true verse. But sometimes people are concerned and they say, well, wouldn't it be greater to lay down your life for your enemies? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a greater love? Like, it, sure, it's great to lay down your life for your friends, but wouldn't it be greater to lay down your life for your enemies? And in that question, there's something really important to notice in this verse that I think is, could be really helpful for you and for me. Um, of course, Jesus is a fan of loving our enemies. You can think about Matthew 5. You can think about how Jesus even prays for those who execute him, that they would be forgiven for they know not what they do. This is not at all an excuse to say that as Christians, we're not to be people who love our enemies. But Jesus' comment here that he lays down his life for his friends sets the frame of what it means to be loving. Here's what I mean. Who is Jesus dying for? Right, think about John 3, 16. Right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. When Jesus says he has laid down his life for his friends, he's saying, I'm not laying down my life for people I dislike, but I'm laying down my life for people that I am for. I'm not laying down my life for people that I wish would be destroyed. I'm laying down my life for people that I love. How we uh, love one another, how we love our neighbor, is going to be shaped in large part by how we view them. Are the people that you love people that you think you should not love? Or do you lay down your life for your friends, even if your friends seem like your enemies? Do you internalize what Paul says in Ephesians, 3, in Ephesians 6, where he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Do you see people that are different than you as your enemies or as your friends that you would lay down your life for? Do you feel like you're loving your spouse in spite of the fact that you really don't like them? Do you feel like you're loving your neighbor in spite of the fact they're a jerk? Or, to follow Jesus' model here, do you lay down your life for your friends, people that you are for, that you care for? Jesus changes how we see ourselves. He changes how we see our neighbor. And most importantly, he changes how we know that God sees us. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And because he loves you, it changes how we see and how we treat those around us. So what do I want you to do this week? I mean, the obvious answer is I want you to love one another. But let's get more practical and more concrete than that. Um, I'd like you to think about and spend some time in prayer this week reflecting on who are the people that you find it most difficult to love? And maybe there's one or two people in your world that comes to mind. I would encourage you to have these be real people. Please don't have them be public figures or people that you only see on social media or someone uh, that, you know, I don't know, a Hamilton character or someone hypothetical, like some real bodied person that you come in contact with on a regular basis. Um, or if, it's, if you don't want to paint with that broad a brush, what about someone in your life do you find it difficult to love? Now I'd like you to work through this prayer project. First question, how has God loved you in similar ways that you're called to love this person? So if you're finding it frustrating that the person that's difficult for you to love is obstinate or they're self-centered or they don't seem to care about others, ask God to say, God, when have I been like that towards you? God, I, I, I don't have in my identity the sort of long-suffering love, but you do, and I'm connected to you. 
God, would you show me what it means to be that sort of loving person in response? Secondly, I want you to ask this question about friends that Jesus offers us an example of. And so the question would be, God, am I viewing this person as my enemy or as my friend? Am I viewing this person as my enemy or as my friend? Now, I'm not trying to be naive here. I'm not trying to say kumbaya, you know, everyone's your friend. I'm saying how you treat them and your posture towards them can be changed and reveal, can reveal how much we've internalized the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If, if Jesus can will the good of his enemy and call us friends, how much more can we will the good of people that have differences of opinion from us, who have different, uh, different goals or ambitions than us? How much more are we like them than Jesus was like us? So how much more we can call ourselves, uh, how, how much we can call our enemies friends? So as you work through those two questions, God, how did I demonstrate the same sort of frustrating attitudes that my person that I'm finding difficult is, is doing? And then secondly, God, how am I viewing them as my friend or my enemy? Uh, you might ask, God, God, how can you change my heart and shift my attitudes towards being more loving to these people in my life? And in so doing, I hope that you find the same sort of joy that Jesus himself gives and promises for you. Let's pray. Jesus, while we were yet sinners, you died for us, and you have called us your friends, and you have loved us, and as, as Paul prayed in Colossians, may we know the depth and breadth and height of your love. God, and the extent to which we know your love is the extent to which we're able to be loving to our neighbor. The extent to which we, we see in them the same sort of person that was loved by you is the extent to which we can be friend, the sort of friends to them that you have been to us. God, I pray um, for my friends who are listening to this and who are thinking about the journey in front of them this week. God, I know some of them are carrying very deep wounds and hurts from people around them. Um, I know that some of them are called to love people that are very difficult to love. Um, They're called to be in relationships or friendships or neighbor relationships with people I've wouldn't want to be in those relationships with. God, I pray that you would give them a supernatural sense of love. Not just loving people who love them. After all, the the Pharisees and the tax collectors do that, Jesus said. Um, But that they would love people who don't deserve love because we didn't deserve love. That they would love people who are difficult to love because we were difficult to love. And in so doing, we would glorify you and we would prove to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.